This is Civilly Speaking, brought to you by the Ohio Association for Justice. Hello and welcome to Civilly Speaking, OAJ's monthly podcast on practical and timely legal issues. I'm your host, Sean Harris. Uh, I'm very happy to have uh, my good friend Jeff Pope on the line with us. Jeff is a partner in the law firm of Pope and Howard based in Atlanta, Georgia. Jeff uh, limits his practice to catastrophic personal injury, trucking, uh, medical malpractice, and products liability cases. Uh, Jeff is a past president of the Georgia Trial Lawyers Association, and we're very pleased to have with us Jeff Pope. Uh, welcome. Thank you, Sean. It's, uh, it's quite an honor to be on your podcast. Well, it's an honor to have you, and I just want to clear up right from the beginning, is it is it true or fair to say that merely by having a southern accent, you are able to influence jurors into your favor that us Yankees are not able to do? I haven't noticed my southern accent helping very much in influence in any aspect of my life. <laughs> Let alone with jurors. Let alone with jurors, that's right. Well, our topic today is do's and don'ts of opening statement. Uh, and uh, probably other than jury selection, opening statement is the critical part of trial. Tell us, maybe generally at the outset, how you approach opening statement. In the way I see it, opening statement, there are as many ways to do an opening statement as you can imagine, and so many very successful lawyers have employed different ways. Everybody's familiar with David Ball says do this, and somebody else says do that. Now, all of those probably have practitioners that follow them, and so I think when I do it myself, I, I try not to use any template, but there are certain things that pretty much any method has. And I guess I would say that the most important thing to do is to spend a lot of time focusing on your opening statement. I had a, a very good lawyer tell me the other day, oh, you know, I just usually kind of shoot from the hip in the opening statement. And I thought to myself, wow, you know, that you, he may be good enough that he can do it, but that can also be a huge wasted opportunity because opening statement is just such an important part of the case have an opportunity both to influence the jurors and to build your own credibility. And so the most important thing that we do is to spend a lot of time carefully crafting the opening statement, distilling down the essence of all the information we've learned through discovery, and trying to present an opening statement that is compelling, that will allow the jurors to start pulling for us, and will allow the jurors to see us as credible lawyers. I certainly have heard plenty of uh, lawyers, as you described, kind of shooting from the hip from opening statement, just going in and telling it like it is. Um, you might have been able to get away with that 20, 30 years ago. I don't see how, how that's an effective strategy today. I don't think it is either. I, mean, I, think, I think one of the things that we have to recognize, and I think most trial lawyers are, do recognize this, is that we are the least credible person in the courtroom. We are the person that the jurors are, are so suspicious of, and they should be. We're there asking for money, and they know that we're going to get paid. And I would be suspicious if I were a juror, too. And so 
I think that when we craft our opening statement, we have to keep that in mind. And so one of the things that we try to do and that we found effective is we try not to use value judgments or value words early in our opening statement. For instance, we don't ever start it by saying, this case is about a negligent driver who ran a stop sign. Instead, we try to give the jurors facts so that they reach the conclusion. And we find that if jurors are allowed to reach their own conclusion, then they are much more likely to hold to that conclusion. And we can talk about confirmation bias and the role that plays in a trial and why opening statement is such a great opportunity to trigger confirmation bias. But we think if you give jurors facts that are undisputed, you build your own credibility, and then you allow them to make their own decision, we all like to make our own decision rather than be told what to think. And I know that's uh, one of the um, ideas or issues that David Ball preaches is um, a premature argument, right? If you get in there right from the get-go and are perceived as taking a position, making value judgments, whatever credibility you had is out the window. I think so. I think that's the case. I try to tell, remind myself that jurors are people. Jurors are just like us. And I try to think of myself giving an opening statement as that insurance salesman that comes into my office, and when he gets there, I'm mad he's there. I wish I hadn't made the appointment. And if he sits down and starts telling me what a great product he has and how I I really need to do this if I want to protect my family, well, I'm going to tune him out because I'm going to find every bone in my body resisting what he has to say. But if he just lays out the facts and I can start to see it myself, then I'll leave the meeting thinking, why did I just buy two insurance policies? You know, and I, and I think jurors are like that. They, they're people just like us. And if you try to, if you try to tell them what to think too quickly, they're going to push back and they'll jump on the defense train and confirmation bias will come into play uh, for the defense. Talk to us about how you go about telling your client's story during opening statement. I think that telling your client's story is is the most important thing in the case. And to do that, you know, it certainly doesn't start with opening statements. You, you have to know it, and it has to be part of who you are when you get up to give the opening statement. And so by ex- trying to experience the client's story as much as I can, whether it's through getting to know the family, getting to know the client, whatever it is, it becomes part of who you are. And so that the jurors can pick up on the conviction in your voice that you that this case means something deeply to you, much more than your professional obligation. And so I think that's the first component. And the second is really think long and hard about what facts matter to this story, what facts are likely to bring people to your side of the story and to illustrate it. And it, that, that's a challenge because we learn so much in a case. And to distill that down to just a few minutes uh, is, is awfully hard to do. And so we spend a lot of time trying to figure out what is the, what is the elevator speech of this case. And, and that's a good point when you talk about condensing and simplifying. Do you, and obviously every case is different, 
But do you have a, a, a goal or a target in mind as far as the overall length of, of opening statement, as far as what will be received and what's effective? Yeah, I, you know, I think it certainly depends on each case. Um, if it's a very complicated med mal case, it's going to be longer than if it's a case that doesn't involve as many issues. But I, I think if, in, in my experience, if if you don't have the jurors in the first few minutes, you're probably not going to get them. And to the, on the other hand, if you can, if you're compelling early on, then it's more likely that they will want to continue listening to you. And so in a very complicated med mal case, I'd say, you know, 40 minutes, maybe at max. Um, and, I, and, and I would certainly want to try to make it in most med mal cases less than that. Um, and, and if it's a, a much more simple case, it can be a much shorter opening statement. Now, I say that knowing that some lawyers do a fantastic job and make their opening statements much longer, but that's not that I don't find that to be effective for me. No, and I've seen all kinds of studies about what an average person's attention span is, and, and we've all sat through bad opening statements that went on and on and on. I mean, you know, hours. Um, yeah, where they're allowed, and it seems to me at some point you're you're talking to hear your own voice. And yeah, and what you what I think has to happen when you do know you're going to give a longer opening statement, you need to make sure you've got a lot of visuals so that and that you're not just throwing visuals up, but it integrates seamlessly into your story, and that gives there's a little bit of a break. They're not just sitting there looking at you talk. They all of a sudden there's a there's a diagram that explains this if you can do it break it up with those then then you can maintain attention a lot longer than you could if you just talked i was going to ask you about visuals um, and whether you use powerpoint keynote type electronic presentation uh, physical blow-ups or or mixture or, or what's your approach on the on the visual end we, we use all of the above, well, electronic plus boards, but we find ourselves using boards more than the electronics. And it's, it can be a lot easier to carry your electronic presentation, but we find that with a board, you, you put usually two, two or three boards up at a time, and as we talk about them, the other boards stay up. So, and they, they're related, so if we're telling a story and the first board is a diagram of something, and the second board is related to it, we think if the jurors get a little bit lost and, and they want to go back and look at the first board I put up so that they can understand whatever issue there was, then they can do that. Whereas if it's a PowerPoint, once you click the button, that image is gone, and it, they can't do that. And so we like to have the physical boards for the most part, that's what we use, certainly in opening statement. There's a lawyer in uh, Cleveland here who actually, a uh, past president of uh, OAJ, Don Eiler, who our listeners uh, are no doubt familiar with. I heard him talk one time on opening statement, and this issue came up, and, and his response was, I always use physical boards because I want the jury to see me sweat. I want them to see me working and physically moving around. And here I'm over here, and I'm over there, and I and I'm and I'm putting in the effort. Literally, great way to explain it. I think when you move, you do you do become a little more comfortable than if you can just sit back by your computer or ask your tech person to go to the next slide. When you're telling the story, as far as the 
we've talked about condensing it and simplifying. Uh, do you tell the story uh, present tense? Is that uh, some uh, a strategy that you use? Yeah, absolutely. We try to tell every story present tense so that it it's happening in real time in the jurors' minds it, instead of well, this is something that happened in the past. Ideally, that will create a sense of oh my God, I can't believe the defendant just did that, um, as, opposed, as opposed to seeing it as something that happened in the past. I utilize that as well, and I think what I, it's almost, I look at it as um, a credibility-building tool because if the event, whatever it is, literally just happened in front of their eyeballs, then they don't have to take the lawyer's word for it about the lawyer telling them what happened in the past, they just saw it happen, and so they know it for themselves. Exactly, and one way to one way to have it happen in front of them is to do a reenactment uh, in front of them, and that can be very effective as well because it, because they actually see it happen. So we're telling the story of our client and their case. Um, do we focus on the injuries and what happened to our client, or do we focus the case through? what the defendant did and the defendant's bad conduct? We, what we typically do, and I think is, we focus first on what the defendant did and focus on the defendant's bad acts, whatever those are. And instead of explaining away potential defenses or focusing too much on what happened to, the, to your client, I would do that later in the opening statement. You certainly want to get to it. But we all have a judgmental side, and I think jurors like us want to judge. They want to find fault with someone, um, you know, and there's the blame the victim mentality. This would never have happened to me because I wouldn't have done whatever your plaintiff did. And, but, there, but there's also the blame the defendant, and that's what we want to trigger. And so if we focus on the defendant's bad acts, on the defendant's decisions that led to whatever the problem was, then we can trigger that judgmental side of the plane of the jurors in our favor. And hopefully then uh, we'll go a long way toward, uh, toward convincing the jurors as the evidence comes in. So I would focus on that first instead of how bad the plaintiff's hurt and, and only get to that later. And I'm not sure. Uh, I, th I think it's much more important to focus on the defendant's bad acts and as opposed to refuting defenses or talking about how horrible the clients are. And, and on the topic of re refuting defenses, I know one of the things that, uh, that David Ball talks about um, is not, not saying or not explaining the defense is going to say, right? But instead being preemptive or at least giving the impression that this was already something that we thought of and considered and rejected. Right, that we went out and looked at X, Y, and Z, and we've talked to the experts, and here's why that's not an issue. Otherwise, we couldn't be coming into court here today. Right, and I, what would I would do, I would take it one step further. I would, in refuting defenses, I would refute as many of them as I could that I thought needed refuting in a proactive, positive way in telling my story so that when the defense makes their point, it sounds silly. Some of them you can't do that, and you have to do the David Ball way of saying that before we came into court, we had to look at whatever it is, 
And so I would try to first refute them by through the story. Second, by doing a direct, well, we, we had to consider this, and here's why you know, this defense doesn't work. Speaking of um, stories and language that we use to tell the stories, I hear, unfortunately, trial lawyers all the time using legalese, using complicated words. Um, how do you approach uh, the specific language Sometimes I've heard lawyers refer to it as they're being, you know, using jury words to talk about your case. See, I, that is a big problem because, you know, if we do, if we do car wreck cases, which most of us do, then terms like delta V or cervical disc herniation, and that just, that's just part of our language. And when we talk to each other, we use it. And when we talk to our experts, we use it. So it is a, it's a big challenge. But so what we do is we try to, we think of it as come up, we come up with a list of all the terms like that that we might use that somebody that we know who is smart but doesn't do this kind of work wouldn't know what they mean. You know, if my wife doesn't know what a delta V is, then I don't need to be using it in front of a juror because that juror might not know what delta V means. And so we, we come up with a list of all those terms and, and do that well in advance of trial and come up with what how we're going to explain that particular concept so that we're not in the middle of a compelling story and a juror who is hooked all of a sudden thinks, well, what, what is a nucleated red blood cell? I don't have any idea what that is. Why does that matter? And then all of a sudden they're daydreaming about nucleated red blood cells and whatever else, and you've lost them. So we come up with a list, and I'm very bad about it because I love the scientific aspect of a case. But if, if we didn't come up with that list, I would be using those terms all the time and losing the jurors in the process. I'll tell you what, speaking of terms and framing and, and how we talk about one one of the uh, things I've started using in my practice, instead of referring to it as a brain injury, well, everybody gets an injury, right? I, a knee injury sounds like a strain sprain. I've started referring to it as brain damage. Uh, because uh, uh, people understand what that is, and frankly, it sounds worse. I just had a, an auto case where as soon as I said brain damage, they elevated it to some higher-up adjuster, I think, based on uh, d describing it that way. And it sounds like you started using that term as early as you could in the process, well before it got to trial. For sure. So that, yeah, so that, so that it didn't be that becomes your term. You've defined no, that's, it from the beginning. Yeah. How do you, Jeff, tell us about how you approach, um, aside from the language, just the, your style um, and how you talk to the individual folks on the jury? I think that's the key, is to, to remember that the people on the jury are individual folks. And I try as hard as I can to remember that, that the people on the jury or the people in my Sunday school class at the neighborhood cookout and that they, like me, want a connection. And so I, I try, and this is, I think it's, it's been the hardest thing for me to do, and it was aided immensely by some trial lawyers' college workshops. But I try to look directly at the jurors at, at, as, as I'm talking to them and make a point to the juror and get some kind of a reaction or just something that, that I'm not walking away right in the middle of a point 
and then look at another juror. And it's, I'll tell you, we did an exercise at a trial artist college workshop where we were all jurors and we watched other people do opening statements. And the idea was to work on talking to people as people. And it was so amazing how, even though I knew it was an exercise, when the lawyer would look directly at me, it was so much more powerful than when the lawyer spoke to the group. And I, I, that's, that was uh, so helpful. And, and it, makes a, it makes a difference in the way you come across, the way the other jurors perceive you, and you, you, feel, you really do feel a sense of connection. So that was a, a big adjustment for me was to stop talking to the audience and start talking to the individuals. And I remember when, when you and I were at the Trailers College together, one of the exercises we did, um, it may have been more for Vordier, but as far as interacting with the jurors, to physically, I think we physically had a ball, and that not only do you have to look at them, but they have to be ready to talk to you first, as if you were going to throw them the ball first before you ask the question. Yeah, those are great. Those kind of exercises I've had them where you have to shake their hand and finish your point and then grab somebody else's hand. And those are, those are great exercises. And I'll tell you how you can do it and how we do just in our practice when we're not at a TLC event. You can do that with a focus group. You can practice talking to a focus group and doing those exact things, and, and, and it, it can make a tremendous difference in the way you try a case. Boy, that's a great idea. We tend to focus in focus groups on the substance of the case when we know so much of the value, so much of communication is nonverbal, is visual. And why wouldn't we take that opportunity to spend time and learn and figure that out in a focus group setting? And I'll tell you one, one story about that, that when I was a law student, there was a, a products liability verdict. I went to the University of Georgia Law School, and there was a products liability verdict in Atlanta in 1991, $101 million. And that was the biggest verdict in Georgia in, by a long shot. And we were fascinated by it. We got Jim Butler, fantastic lawyer, got it, got the verdict. And one of my friends somehow had cable back then and watched it on, watched the closing argument on court TV. And he was just shocked. He said, you know, it was just like he was talking to his neighbor over the fence and told me, okay, he's not giving a speech. He's talking to a person. And it worked for Jim Butler back then. And it, it probably still works for Jim Butler today. And it can, it works for, for all of us. I think that's a good point to be uh, conversational, to be yourself because, Nobody likes being lectured to. Yeah, absolutely. Especially, especially my kids, and I'm probably no better. They're at, they're at the top of the list of people who don't appreciate yeah. it. How about, and I know uh, there are uh, lawyers on both sides of this issue. Where do you come down as far as, and, and I don't know what the rule is in Georgia, um, uh, mentioning a specific amount in, during opening statement? I don't do it, um, typically. Uh, I know some lawyers do, and I, I, David Ball advocates doing that. Um, and I can see the arguments for it, but I have not, I have not typically done it. And I think in, in Georgia you could do that. You could, you could mention that, but, but we haven't. Um, and I'm, it's, I think it's an interesting idea. That what, what do most people in Ohio do? Well, I think you find both, you know, both schools of thought.
Um, I tend to think that I wanted to get them warmed up to the idea that that's the whole reason we're here is for mm -hmm. to see how much they're willing to allow in their verdict. Um, and if my concern is, if they're hearing it for the first time in closing argument, it could come as a shock. Yeah, yeah. If all of a sudden, if you're going to ask, if you know that you're going to ask for $5 million, if you ask for an opening, then they will have had a little bit of time to think that through, and they'll see it as a $5 million case. Right. So that's, I can see that. Yeah, that's kind of been my philosophy, and frankly, I've even gone so far in some cases to bring up a specific amount during jury selection uh, because there are folks, as we know, who when you when they hear a high number, there, no no set of facts would ever allow them to award yeah. that much. Better to hear it then and, frankly, try and get them for cause while you still have a chance. Yeah. We try to bring out numbers in jury selection and then numbers in number some numbers in uh, opening statements, but I haven't done the, here's what we think we're going to ask for this amount in closing. Um, but but I, that's an interesting debate and an interesting interesting subject. Right. And as soon as you figure out the right answer, will you let us know? <laughs> right, yeah. Well, I, it'll be the right answer when you see somebody do it and they get a fantastic verdict you didn't think they'd get. Right, that's right. Uh, Jeff, the last question for you here today, and it may be the toughest, Dogs have a new coach this year. How's the team looking? You know, we are we are as excited. We are an eternally optimistic fan base, and so <laughs> right Brown, now the Browns strength, fans in Ohio can relate. Oh yeah, we the strength and conditioning program's better than ever. Everything's better than ever. So I don't know. We'll we'll see. I'm I'm optimistic and excited about Kirby Smart, but uh, you know sometimes. In the fall, when we we have to play Alabama again, all of a sudden those dreams get dashed. Yeah, they tend to show up on the schedule every year. Yeah. yeah. Well, Jeff Pope, uh, it's been uh, a lot of fun. We appreciate you joining us here on Civilly Speaking. Thanks very much. Thank you, Sean. I sure do appreciate the opportunity.